Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we talk with Erica Bakiaki, a legal scholar and fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in the Life and Family Initiative. Her work focuses on equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. Erica is the author of two influential law review articles on abortion and the Constitution. She's also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project. She's the author of the recent book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. So Erica, uh, thanks for joining us. And you know, today we hear a lot um, that if you're a feminist, you have to be pro-choice. Uh, and it seems to be almost like a one-for-one um, uh, uh, correspondence that to be a feminist is to be pro-choice. But historically, that's not true. Um, you know, many of the early pioneers of the women's rights movement, many of the early uh, feminist leaders uh, thought that being pro-woman meant being pro-life. Um, could you explain why, uh, you know, share with the listeners why the kind of early women's rights advocates were also pro-life advocates? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so glad you are doing this right now and congrats on your on your new book. So um, I guess the best way to think about it is that they understood themselves you know, because of advances in embryology at the time, which was also uh, the cause of um, the lobbying that the doctors did then to extend kind of common law uh, protections into more statutory protections for unborn human beings all the way from the earliest stages, you know, at conception. Uh, they understood themselves to be mothers when the child was first, you know, conceived in their womb. So as they understood those advances in embryology, they understood that that took place much earlier than had been understood before in terms of quickening or things like that. So they, um, you know, one of the people I I point to um, most frequently is Victoria Woodhill, mainly because she's an incredible radical. She's not a Christian at all. She, um, you know, had very different views um, about marriage uh, and divorce um, than, than I have. But I think because of that, it's helpful to see that, you know, she was this outspoken advocate of constitutional equality for women. She um, you know, was the first woman to run for president, the first woman to testify before Congress. And she really championed the rights of children. But as she said, rights that begin while yet they remain the fetus. So I always like to sort of give her big quote um, from 1970, which she wrote. I mean, she's written, she wrote a bunch of different things uh, on this. But remember, this is like two years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, um, which these women were very much aware of because many of them were sort of pushing to see women's rights recognized in those Reconstruction Amendments, some of them all the way to the Supreme Court. So she says, many women who would be shocked at the very thought of killing their children after birth deliberately destroy them previously. If there's any difference in the actual crime, we should be glad to have those who practice the latter, meaning abortion, pointed out. The truth of the matter is that it is just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition as it is to destroy it after the fully developed form is attained. For it is the self-same life that is taken. And one of the reasons I like to point to her is because that argument is just an excellent pro-life argument (laughs) Um, that really, you know, regardless of what the form of the child is, 
at the very earliest stages, it is the same life that then extends and develops um, throughout its time in utero. And then, of course, throughout its entire life, um, once it's born and then through adulthood. So I think it's just an excellent argument. The second thing I would point out, apart from them just understanding that this was a human being to whom they'd owed duties of care, um, was that they also recognized that, you know, the more abortion became available, um, the more it would tend to um, you know, give more power, put more sexual power in the hands of men. And this was something they were really very much fighting. They were fighting for their um, own sort of self-determination, you could say, when it came to sex. They were fighting marital rape. They were fighting um, kind of the male presumption just because of male, you know, power, but also, um, you know, sort of uh, greater libido to just sort of assume that they could have sex with women. Um, even their wives. Um, And so they really believe that by kind of decoupling um, sex from reproduction, that this would do great harm to women. And so they really, you know, they pushed for um, what they called voluntary motherhood, which is not uh, kind of the equivalent of, you know, what pro-choicers call forced motherhood in any way, or, or, um, or sort of the adverse of that. It's actually just this idea that when a woman is not uh, able, willing, whatever, to have a child at that point in her life, that abstinence is really the proper response and that that would be harder for men, but it is really what what the sort of the best response to the asymmetries of reproduction would require. I really appreciate that that kind of overview. And I think, um, you know, I, I grew up pro-life and the pro-life movement. And I've often heard pro-lifers say, you know, the early feminists, the first wave feminists, the, the suffragists were all pro-life, but typically it's kind of couched as, you know, they were against abortion because they they believed the unborn child was human, which of course is true. But I think that secondary piece of this is actually not good for women. This is not uh, a, the proper response to what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother. This is not actually a feminist proposal is a really important component of that. Right. And so um, I think conversely, we hear a lot from abortion supporters that that we need abortion because women can't be free and equal otherwise. We talk about this a lot in the book. We, we cite your work at great length in, in our second chapter on this topic. Um, and, and we argue that, as you do, that the opposite is true, right? That abortion is actually bad for women. And yet, you know, from abortion supporters, we don't hear, you know, rarely do they say abortion is this wonderful thing that needs to be celebrated. It's it's usually, you know, it's kind of icky. We wish it weren't true, but, but women just need this. And so could you tell us a little bit about why, you know, um, perhaps at, at a fundamental level, um, abortion is actually not good for women. It doesn't make women free and equal. Yeah, I mean, it's such, you know, the more I get into this and further sort of into both their arguments and sort of response is that, you know, you really sort of see how sad of an argument it is. It's sort of like, because society has really failed women and failed to respond um, the way that those early women's rights activists were um, urging society to, to really be hospitable to women and the children they bear and, you know, disproportionately care for an early childhood and all of that, because society has failed in such a, you know, we have to sort of resort to this kind of need to like take out our children. And that's, so it's really kind of like this really sad response, which frankly is the way that I think you know, in the early sort of abortion rights movement um, in the 1970s, you you heard more of that, that it was more like a necessary evil. And so the way in which it's been sort of contorted into this like positive good that, you know, women's equality relies on it, I think is really where you see the real corrosive 
um, nature of the problem, which I which I know you you will be bringing out in your book, um, in sort of the way it's corroded all sorts of different you know elements of society. But I think you know the way that I I have had some success <laughs> in um, in sort of helping people see is that there's a real male normativity. I mean. You can say that's sort of a feminist way of talking about it, and I guess that's true. But there's a real male normativity in thinking of equality um, as the capacity to walk away from the sexual act. You know, so I think it's really helpful to start with this idea of, and just the reality, the biological reality of reproductive asymmetry. That when men and women engage in this sexual act together, it is women's bodies who have the capacity to bear children, not men's. And so men have the capacity literally to walk away, whether it's walk into the other room or walk away entirely from their responsibilities, they can walk away. And so there's this idea that, you know, in order to have this kind of equal, I don't know, autonomy, I mean, that's what it is, walking away from responsibility. It's sort of, you know, I'm a law unto myself, I, I can walk away. Um, that women have to be able to walk away too, walk away from the child too. But of course, the real distinction is that they're not just walking away, they're engaging this affirmative, they have to engage in this affirmative, violent act. And so it's a real, you know, and, and now we have this move that, um, you know, which is basically now we need, you know, kind of abortion in order to attain market equality. So it's now like in order for women to be kind of like market equals, you know, to, to earn as much as men and to do, then they really need to have this kind of equal autonomy. And I, you know, I understand that to be really giving in, really capitulating to kind of the logic of the market instead of understanding that, you know, the family and the relations of the family, the uh, relations of mothers and fathers to their children, all of those are really first. They come first. They have prior. They should have priority in sort of thinking about um, the goods of society because they're the most basic relations. Um, and if we don't get those right, then of course everything else is going to be kind of built upon uh, a lie. So, following up on that, um, everything you just said about you know the realities of um, the asymmetry of reproduction, and then you know how how we build a society that recognizes and you know respects and honors. Um, that asymmetry and what it expects um, for both men and women, um, you know, we agree with entirely, uh, and, and we we cite you, um, you know, throughout the book uh, in various uh, parts of the book, you know, on this um, this insight that you've had. Our book is primarily um, geared towards um, an audience that's already inclined to be pro-life. It's it's meant to kind of equip them with um, a more uh, overarching, encompassing argument about um, the pro-life movement. Um, uh, than it is about persuading skeptics or persuading people who don't already agree with us. I mean, we, we think it's accessible to people who don't already agree with us, but th those weren't our primary um, right. audience in mind. Um, but one of the things that Alexander and I uh, both really admire about you is a lot of your work really is geared towards audiences that don't already agree with us. And, and you, you've done a lot of conversations and debates and um, presentations, symposia, where you know, you're in somewhat hostile territory and you're um, not preaching to the choir. Um, what, what is your best advice for um, listeners for those conversations? I mean, how should we think about, you know, everything you've said about why abortion is bad for women, the realities of asymmetrical reproduction? How do we help communicate um, those truths to someone who might be persuaded by the Shout Your Abortion uh, movement? Um, you know, how, how do you begin to have those conversations? 
Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I, you know, I have to say that it's really, in my view, really the fruit of a lot of prayer. Um, and just really wanting to sort of, you know, I, um, and many of your listeners may not know, I come from the perspective of having been a women's studies, you know, major at Middlebury College in the 1990s. I was one of the leaders of the Women's Center there. I, you know, worked, well, I volunteered one summer handing out pamphlets or whatever for, um, for Bernie Sanders. So I kind of come from that perspective. And so I really felt kind of called to be the bridge um, to what I take to be a much more pro-woman um, stance than I uh, used to believe. And so people were bridges for me. And so I feel a real responsibility to be that bridge for others. And I was not convinced by some sort of, you know, people, you know, hollering at me and kind of owning me in any way. You know, I have to say I was um, first really moved um, by by the presence, the sheer presence of Helen Alvarez. I actually don't remember a thing that she said, but she came into a classroom when I was um, at American University for a semester. You know, this is in the 1990s. She was working for the bishops. And she just had this joy and peace about her and just a love of her interlocutor that the <laughs> interlocutor, the pro-choice interlocutor did not share for her. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> and, and I think that that really remains the best possible way to interact with our interlocutors is immense charity and a real belief that, you know, and this is sort of an Aristotelian um, view that like they are aiming for some good. And so what is that good? Like find it, search for it <laughs> um, and try to pull it out and try to try to, it's not so much find common cause as though we're going to, you know, go together to the legislature and, you know, find, you know, lobby for some common bill. It's like finding common cause as human beings who generally, I mean, obviously there are some people who are like steeped in evil and there's not much you can do. And I, you know, they can't hear me and all of that. But I think many, many people, especially the people I've talked to, um, Robin West, Reva Siegel, Eva Federkite, they um, are aiming at um, some good. And, and so this is what I would say is that I always begin with, um, the care ethic, you know, just this sense. Um, I st I tend to steer clear of rights talk. I've learned that a long time ago from Marianne Glendon, but I think that that kind of gets us in this kind of Lockean framework where we're all battling about, um, rights, which sometimes can be kind of seem incommensurable. But I think if we talk instead about the duties of care we owe to one another and, um, the need for, um, real responsibilities for one another that, um, that, you know, mothers have responsibility for their children, fathers have responsibilities to their children, um, and society owes responsibilities to both mothers and fathers. I think like talking about those kinds of interweaving obligations and talking about the duties we have to children first and foremost, like putting children first, but not, of course, just unborn children, just children and their vulnerability and dependency, and that that's why we ought to care for them, but that mothers need care. And fathers need help in, you know, giving mothers and children care. And I think it just kind of is part of just being sort of humane in this, like trying to find the common human element in it um, that I think has been, and, and not at all like, um, <laughs> you know, making my strong arguments, which I always do, but it's just trying to find that first, because I don't think there's a way of um, bringing people at all around to, a, to one's position, um, by starting as enemies. I mean, it's kind of this, I'll probably hack his statement here, but Abraham Lincoln talked about, you know, the best way to 
um, to sort of win over your enemies is by making them your friends. And that's kind of the way I sort of go about my work. And, and you're too humble to um, toot your own horn. So um, let me do it for you. Um, for, for our listeners, I mean, a great example, um, the embodiment of everything Erica just said in terms of like, you know, how she thinks about going about doing this is a 90 minute long episode of the Ezra Klein show uh, produced by the New York Times where, you know, Erica's the only guest. And so for an hour and a half, um, Ezra is, um, you know, grilling her on questions about uh, being a pro-life, pro-woman advocate. Um, and Erica, you don't pull your punches. You make strong arguments, um, but you make them charitably and you make them accessible to someone with a you know pretty different you know foundational worldview than um, the one that you hold to, the one that Alexandra and I uh, hold to. So, so I would commend you know our listeners. You know, as soon as you're finished listening uh, to this episode of the podcast, um, look up that episode of the Ezra Klein show from a couple weeks uh, ago where. Erica was the guest because it's just it's a really, you know, kind of, you know, prime example of, of how to have those conversations. Yeah, I, I really I appreciate everything you do, Erica. And, and in particular, that kind of last insight you were sharing about, you know, not only befriending those who disagree with us, but really trying to give them the their best argument uh, when you're responding to them. Right. I did a, a debate a couple of months ago with Jill Filipovich, who's a pro-abortion attorney and writer. And I, I really liked her personally. You know, we spent time together before and after the debate. The debate was respectful, productive. Um, and I, I really do. I like her a lot. I, I would not, you know, I don't think we're good friends or anything, but um, I liked her company. And, and during the debate, she kind of made this this closing comment about, um, you know, if I had gotten pregnant in my 20s, I would have wanted abortion because my, my life would have gotten off track, essentially. And, and I, you know, all these things that I now have, I wouldn't have had. I wouldn't have found my husband. Um, and I've, I've thought about that a lot since then. I've written a piece about it, in fact, because I think that's a really human feeling, right? The feeling that we all want to kind of control our the outcomes in our lives. We want to be in charge of what's going to happen to us. And obviously, I don't condone abortion as a means of doing that, but I can very much relate to the sense that we want to be in control, right? We all kind of have this desire to to be autonomous, to be independent, to, to make good and beautiful things happen for ourselves. So I think a lot of um, pro-abortion people are, are coming from a place that, that many of us can relate to on that score. Um, but I, I wanted to pull out another point that you mentioned, which is you said Lockean. Um, so could you explain kind of for our listeners where where John Locke and his uh, arguments, his political theory kind of fits into all of this for your your thought? Yeah, so Locke kind of remains this <laughs> central figure, if only because we're, you know, Americans really tend, sometimes without even knowing we're doing it, to kind of lean on Lockean assumptions about human beings. And I won't um, bore your listeners with all sorts of references to, you know, his second treatise of government or something. But I think, you know, it's easy enough to say that, you know, while he can be totally credited with providing this kind of theoretical foundation for the Declaration of Independence, for, you know, modern self-government, um, for, uh, you know, to, to counter the divine right of kings, I think it's helpful as um, some wiser than I have said, uh, why, uh, you know, to kind of keep Locke in a lockbox. I really like that idea that, you know, you use him for what he's, <laughs> what he was helpful for, even for the founders, you know, the founders weren't relying on him for every single way they thought about things. They certainly didn't think about human relationships in kind of this contractual consensual sense at all. They were by and large Christians, even deists didn't think, you know, that way. So I think there's a way in which because of the receding of Christianity, there's a way that like everyone tends to kind of um, in this kind of liberal era, um, sort of use Locke as the way they think, especially about rights. And so in my new book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, in which I sort of lean on Wollstonecraft's view of rights as necessary for, 
carrying out our responsibilities. I'm trying to kind of get back to a more classic understanding of right or um, sort of our, you know, um, our capacity or freedom to do things um, that we are obligated to do, right? And so that's sort of the way Wollstonecraft, she understood our, herself, you know, to that, that we were that we were interdependent, always interdependent, mothers and fathers, fully in relation to an, each other. But Locke, with his kind of mythical state of nature, especially if you read him a bit more as a Hobbesian, <laughs> that's a big debate that goes on. Um, there tends to be this idea of like rights were based in kind of self-ownership and autonomy and property rights for him are really paradigmatic. So you can hear this. I mean, you see this, um, Zan, in your own work because you respond to it so well. But there's this kind of Lockean way of thinking about abortion where this kind of woman, you know, the pregnant woman owns her own body. And just like, um, you know, a property owner uh, who owns his own property has this kind of absolute right to, in our tradition, although it's been changed some, kind of kill anyone who comes upon it. You know, it's like this woman has this absolute property right to expel the child who, you know, if she doesn't, you know, hasn't consented to the child being there is like a trespasser, an invader. And then if she consents, you know, is more like an inv inv invited guest. This is very much like a Lockean way of thinking about things. And I think it's just a really poor way of understanding any kind of human relations. I think, you know, Locke probably thought the same, although we can argue about that as well. But, you know, the reason why pro-lifers, um, believe, uh, you know, or understand that the unborn child has, um, you know, a right to life or that we um, owe, you know, duties of care to that child is not because of any autonomy that child has. It's because, literally because the child is vulnerable, defenseless, dependent on um, its mother. And the mother is the only one who can give that child care. It's like this existential dependency. So even like thinking through the problem with Lockean rights as your, um, you know, framework is just a really false way of thinking it through. And hopefully by the time this airs, although maybe later, I have a piece coming out in New York Times about kind of this exact framing that I think it's been um, really kind of a, a, you know, a false, a false footing uh, upon which a lot of us have been engaging in, in the, um, the question of abortion. That, that New York Times, uh, at least the draft that I've read of it, it it's outstanding. So, you know, I encourage our listeners, um, depending on when it's published and when this episode is published, um, you know, do a Google search, find it, um, read it, share it. Uh, it. It's it's really a great encapsulation of how the 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 Lockean personhood and autonomy debates have kind of corrupted um, much of our discourse about abortion. Um, and, and I want to follow up on that because you you had mentioned in the answer to one of your earlier questions, uh, one of our earlier questions was um, you cited Marianne Glendon's book Rights Talk. And how you try to steer clear of rights talk, um, and yet the the title of your book is <laughs> the rights of women um, reclaiming a lost vision. And, and I also I commend that to listeners. It's you know, uh, and if you don't have time to actually read the book, although you should, um, we did an event um, EPPC co-sponsored with the Catholic Information Center, um, where Erica spoke, and then um, Mary Eberstadt and um, Ashley McGuire gave responses, and then we had you know Q and A with the panel and the audience and. Um, you know, that's another thing that you could listen to to learn more um, uh, about Erica and her work. Um, but the title was The Rights of Women. And I want to ask you, how do duties and virtues uh, fit in with that? Uh, how, how is Wollstonecraft, how does 
someone like Glendon? How does someone like you uh, think about the interrelationship of rights, duties, and virtues? And then how do you apply those three concepts to the abortion debate? Um, how would enlarging our moral vocabulary beyond just rights to also include you know, a sound understanding of rights and a sound understanding of duties and a sound understanding of virtues, how does that then map onto some of the abortion debates? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the single line, if I can get it right, is that rights are necessary to virtuously carry out our duties. And so, you know, that's sort of a more classical understanding. And I argue it's the understanding that Wollstonecraft had in her Vindication of the Rights of Women, which also has rights in the title. <laughs> but uh, as many scholars before me have pointed out, um, is far more about duties and virtue than it is about rights. So rights Freed and freedom are really means for us to um, to live virtuously and thereby, um, you know, attain kind of personal and societal happiness. And that, you know, if you look around at your life, I mean, rights don't come first. You know, rights, again, are necessary, but it's really our obligations um, to one another in the family um, because we're, you know, as as the ancients knew parts of greater wholes that we're all deeply interdependent on one another. And so we have these obligations to one another. And that, you know, as Wollstonecraft saw that really what a society does properly is help individuals, help persons carry out those obligations. Like that's how a society functions well is when people are carrying out their obligations to one another. Why? Well, because those obligations are fulfilled and therefore then the people who are on the other side of the obligations, you know, have their needs met, but also because carrying out our obligations, especially with virtue, and that means um, with a sense of, um, you know, doing so um, in a way that um, helps us to flourish, right? It It is not in a self-seeking way, but in a way that um, helps human beings to live according to reason, you know? So, um, I think it's Cicero who talks about how virtue is um, fully formed reason that really like we need to be living according to the highest principle in us. And as these rational animals or rational creatures, as Wollstonecraft, you know, would call us, um, that reason is that highest principle and that, um, you know, to live according to reason is to not to have reason govern our appetites, you know, our appetites, uh, our passions, our lower passions are, you know, they're good and they, they have their own um, ends, but they're not like the complete end of human beings, right? Our passions for sex and for food and our need for all those things, they have to be governed by higher principles. And, um, and that's what virtue is, you know, so, you know, the virtue of, of temperance or, or self-government or, um, or sexual self-mastery, integrity, all of these things are, um, really important for just living out human relations. I mean, one of the things Wilson Craft was really good about was just seeing how she talked about kind of the want of male chastity was this like massive cause of women's immiseration. But if you, you know, you can see that if men, she would say, you know, when men aren't governed by virtue, they really live as beasts. You know, they live like the animals do. It's something I ask my children frequently, like, do you want to live like an animal and just according to your each and every fleeting desire, or do you want to live as a human being and living according to your, you know, your reason. And, um, and for Christians, that reason is, you know, we hope to be, um, comes to kind of full flowering and is, um, enlightened by, by, you know, the re by, you know, the light of, of faith and grace. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess with the abortion question, 
you know, obviously women are, you know, tend to be lots of times um, pushed by kind of the passions of fear or, you know, other people's, you know, um, coercion and all that stuff. And I think sometimes we just have to have those principles um, uh, governing um, our understanding that there's a human child here to whom we owe duties of care. Um, There are other people who can, you know, um, should be called to be um, helping me out in the community. And, um, and so that's kind of a better way of framing this thing that duties come first. And so um, fulfilling those are what going to bring, you know, happiness. The one thing I also want to respond to Zan, when you were talking about kind of this desire for control is that we just have, you know, I, I mentioned on the Ezra Klein show that it's just, it's so sad to me that so many, and I mean, I felt this way too, as a, as a pro-choice feminist, that we have this kind of like ex ante um, sort of, you know, fear or decision that, you know, we don't want to have children and we only have want to have a couple. And, and it's so sad because when people, when, you know, those of us who have had children, when we actually have them and each one of them, even though it's hard and even though it's probably the hardest work we do, it like opens up this totally unbidden world to us that we couldn't have chosen, that we couldn't have made ourselves. And so it like opens up this horizon that is so much beyond like our kind of I think sometimes like stultifying, like nasal gazing way of thinking about what our lives could be. Um, and children really do that. Um, they're, they're, you know, they open up kind of the future to us in a way that I think our own plans and desires and designs just uh, tend not to. Yeah, I, I love that insight because the first thing when I when I heard Jill making this comment, the first thing I, I felt, I, I just felt so sad for her that she felt that way because it was obviously a very sincere and, and deeply rooted feeling. And while I can relate to it, I also, my, my first thought was most of the, you know, most wonderful, beautiful things in my life were totally unpredictable, right? Who I was born to, the fact that I was raised Catholic, you know, the fact that I met my husband when and where I met him and who he is. None of these things are something I produced or controlled or decided for myself, right? And I think most people would say most of their biggest blessings are things they, they never would have predicted or imagined for themselves. And so I think it's this kind of false idea, right, that we can be gods, right, that we, we can kind of take control of everything and, and produce the best possible lives for ourselves. And abortion kind of fits into that that worldview. Um, but you kind of mentioned this in your, your last point and, um, you know, earlier on in our conversation that the kind of uh, pro-abortion feminist reliance on abortion is really a response to the failures of men or as they see it, the failures of men to to be present or the things that society ought to be doing for women that, that aren't done that therefore make abortion, as they would put it, um, necessary. And, and I know you talk about this a bit in your book, but um, what should our society ask of men? What should what should men uh, do that might make childbearing, childrearing easier for women and, and therefore kind of reducing the, the idea that women need abortion? Yeah, I mean, that's like the $60,000 question as far as I'm concerned, you know, because it, it, it's been this fascinating thing to watch how people respond to my work. So I've had like, you know, there's this thinker on the right who says like, Erica just wants like women to control men. And then there's people on the left who say after the Ezra Klein thing, like, you know, she just wants women to be the ones responsible for sex. And what about men? And I'm like, ah, you know, (laughs) so, I mean, I kind of come out with this Wollstonecraft response, which is um, actually we all ought to be responsible for ourselves in terms of our own kind of self-governance and um, really learning the virtues of self-mastery, which I think can be, you know, and uh, must be really taught as, um, as children. And so I guess that would be the first thing I would say is that, you know, the, 
experience of fatherhood, um, which, by the way, both of these men who uh, were, were responding <laughs> to me on either side have and relish, um, is really the single best response, you know, as I say, to kind of reproductive asymmetry that um, engaged fatherhood, you know, Brad Wilcox has done so much good work on this, but he's, you know, shown that really engaged fatherhood, um, where men are, um, are, you know, really, uh, not necessarily like, you know, doing half of the chores or something like that, but are really engaged emotionally in the lives of their, of their wives and their, um, and their children is really the place where, you know, you see women become um, happiest, like those are the happiest wives and where children, you see all sorts of indicators that when fathers are engaged in the lives of, of their children, that fathers just, that those children, excuse me, do, do so much better, right? So I think engaged fatherhood is the number one thing. And I think in our society where, you know, you see declines in um, real wages for, for working class men, that we need to find ways to um, deal with that crisis of especially blue collar men kind of out of work. Um, I think the push, this is getting into another sort of issue, but the push for like college education for everybody um, has really left a lot of men behind. And we have to be finding ways to to help them sort of economically so they can participate. But I also think that there's a way in which restricting abortion, and you see this. So Jonathan Click, who's done, I think it's Click, K-L-I-C-K, has done work showing that when the costs of sex are increased, um, people change their sexual behavior. And so I think there's kind of a misconception that, you know, when um, abortion is restricted, we'll have so many out of wedlock babies and so many, I mean, that's not quite right, that there is going to be a shift where people, at least that's what economists show in, in pointing to other sorts of things, pointing to, you know, child re requirements of child support and enforcement of child support that you see men change their sexual behavior when they realize they're going to be on the hook for their whole lifetime, you know? And so how do we do that? Um, I think that these are really, really big questions that a lot of us have to be working at. Um, and I guess that is where I see, you know, so it's sort of the idea, and this is what I kind of argue for in my book is that we've always understood like, you know, at least, you know, conservatives that, and I think, uh, you know, people on the left too, that, motherhood is this kind of constitutive feature of women, but I think fatherhood really has to be understood as this constitutive feature of men, um, you know, whether or not they become men, that it's really, what is it to be a father? What is it to live out fatherhood um, in a way that um, is, you know, and I, I can't answer this myself, but I think it's it's sort of a, a noble quest at self-mastery for the good of others, Um and, and so that's, those are kind of the questions that um, I think we need to, to be working at, um, especially on the right. I, I love everything uh, you said about fatherhood. It, it rings true to me. I would say the um, greatest blessing in my life has been, you know, our three children. Um, God willing, we'll have more. Um, and, you know, as Alexandra said, they're not something that we could have ever planned or manufactured or produced in kind of that sense. They're received as gifts and then they bring out the best in you. Uh, and that's, that's right. not to say it's easy. It's not to say that there aren't, you know, sleepless nights or frustrating days. Um, but it's to say that all that, all those kind of sacrifices um, bring out what's best in life to a certain extent. Um, and I wanted to mention another book uh, when you were talking about the sexual economics, um, a, a book by a friend of ours, Mark Regnerus, a professor of sociology at the University of Texas in Austin. His book, Cheap Sex, is also really good in kind of doing a sociological economic analysis of how um, sexual behaviors change based upon the uh, costs of sex. And 
and how um, in our modern culture, uh, sex has become cheap and what that uh, um, therefore entails. Um, but since we're running out of time, I, I, I want to ask, we're recording this um, before Dobbs has been officially released, um, but it could be released any day now. I mean, especially in light of uh, uh, the individual um, who was arrested at you know one forty three in the morning carrying a gun outside of Justice Kavanaugh's house. So, um, you know, we don't know um, if the court's going to accelerate their schedule for getting these opinions out. But on the assumption that something like the leaked draft becomes the majority opinion um, and that Roe is finally overturned. Um, what's your advice uh, for the pro-life movement? You know, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? Um, you know, you have a captive audience of listeners. Um, what are the marching orders um, that you would give uh, give to listeners? Yeah. So my view is that in addition to really, you know, pushing in, especially the blue states like mine in Massachusetts, to really, you know, kind of like push back on this crazy, crazy radical pro-abortion fanaticism in so many of these states, you know, which which in some states, you know, edges onto kind of um, allowances of infanticide. I would say that the real singular thing that we need to be doing is working at family policy. And so both the left and the right have been talking about this for a while. Um, but, you know, I think we've got to get in the same room and hash things out Um I think there's all sorts of ways. I mean, part of my book, you know, it's funny on the Ezra Klein show, we talked so much about sex and contraception and abortion, but we, you know, we got the end about family policy, but so much of my book is um, about kind of work and economic transitions and what it, what it um, meant for women, especially to move from sort of um, the agrarian through industrialization and now into the kind of modern, um, modern kind of workplace and what all of that means and what the kind of economic transitions um, that have taken place mean for the, you know, family today. And so I think, I think the right tends to not see those kinds of economic transitions as important and kind of devastating to many people as they are. And so getting a hold on those and, and trying to see that you know, it's really difficult. There are some, you know, wealthy people and, and some middle class, but mainly wealthy people who can really, you know, um, uh, care for the needs of the family without any sorts of support that it kind of can be like they can kind of live in live in sort of a libertarian atmosphere and it'll be fine. But, you know, what are the ways in which um, families who have really been rent by, um, by decline in manufacturing jobs, decline in men's real wages, you know, uh, you know, low paying service industry jobs, like all sorts of these kinds of things. Um, you know, the massive increases in the cost of housing, the cost of insurance, the cost of, you know, all these kinds of things, plus the way in which assortative mating has made, you know, uh, the income gap, um, between kind of the professional class and the working class, um, you know, the, the way in which the wealth gap and the income gap can really be um, blamed, I think, in part on a sort of mating as well as all these other economic transitions. Like, how is it that we can help the family, help families? Because without good families that aren't, um, you know, kind of akin to like industrial era families where, you know, both parents, especially among the poor and working classes were sent off to work and children sort of had to fend for themselves or now are sent into daycare, uh, you know, two weeks after they've been born um, for, you know, hours and hours on end. Like this is, there's, we have to respond in kind of the same way. I'm not saying that we need a kind of new deal, although a new deal um, with, you know, different maybe assumptions would be good. 
But um, I think there are responses that um, that family policy can tend to without um, kind of, you know, while taking into consideration the unintended consequences that have come to pass with um, other kinds of growth and welfare. Um, I wouldn't see these as growth and welfare. I'd see this as a way to kind of share the economic cost of raising children, which families do for everybody. And so how do we share those costs better across the society? Because if we're not doing that, we have a lot of what economists call like freeloaders, right? People who benefit from uh, other parents, other other adults raising children, they get all the benefits and then those, those parents um, have those economic costs. So how can we think about doing that? And um, so that's that's really where I think a lot of us need to be headed. And I know EPPC is very much primed uh, to be headed in that direction. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'll just um, mention for listeners that I think our colleague Patrick Brown uh, at EPPC, um, who, who's you know um, he's in the Life and Family Initiative with with you and Alexandra. He's been doing a lot of really good work on family policy. And what what I would suggest to uh, listeners as a place to start, he had a New York Times op-ed. Um, I think it was sometime either in late April or early May. Uh, I think it was, it was probably early May. It was shortly after the Alito opinion was leaked. And it was titled something like the pro-family agenda Republicans should adopt uh, after Dobbs. Um, I'm sure the New York Times had a more concise headline than that. But um, that was something like the gist of the, the headline. And that was also the gist of the op-ed. You know, he was giving advice uh, to the Republican Party on this is what a kind of uh, pro-family economic agenda that was um, took seriously economic realities, took seriously market realities, but also took seriously um, duties that we owe uh, to families, duties that we owe to women um, bearing children. Uh, and so that would be something I would commend to, to listeners to check out. Um, and Patrick has a whole host of other essays that you can find uh, on the EPPC website. And I would second Patrick's work. Absolutely. I'm uh, very much, very much a fan. All right. Well, on that note, we want to thank you, Erica, so much for joining us for all your insights today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.